Welcome to UO Today. I'm Paul Peppis, director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Daniel Gomez Steinhardt, assistant professor of cinema studies at the University of Oregon. Steinhardt's research and teaching focus on global Hollywood, production studies, film aesthetics, independent film, and contemporary international art cinema. His first book, Runaway Hollywood, Internationalizing Postwar Production and Location Shooting, was published in 2019. As a 2018-19 Oregon Humanities Center teaching fellow, Steinhardt developed and taught the class Hollywood Film Style during the 2018 fall quarter. Thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So let's start at the beginning. How would you, how do you define cinema studies as a discipline? I think, um, I mean, I, I think we need to think broadly in terms of cinema studies, and you know, it doesn't just uh, incorporate film, study of film, um, but media broadly. Um, so that would include uh, television, new media, uh, video games, um, and I think that you know that also reflects sort of the realities of, of the industries. You know, if you look at uh, who owns the film and media today, um, it's really a, a set of organizations, of corporations. And so I think even looking at the kind of industrial um, connections, um, all these things are, are intertwined. Um, at the same time, you know, I think we can look at each individual um, media film, TV, and ask very specific questions um, about about each of these. And in our cinema studies program, you guys deal with all of this. Yes. We do, yeah. So it's sort of cinema studies with an asterisk, uh, meaning it's the study of film, TV, and media. Great. So what led to your interest in cinema studies? Um, I mean, I think, you know, I didn't have any kind of unremarkable connection to film uh, and media growing up. I think I was like um, anyone, you know, I watched a lot of movies growing up. Um, I was very much uh, a, a part of the video cassette generation, um, going to the video store, recording uh, movies off of television. Um, but I think when it started to become more serious for me uh, was perhaps in, in high school. Um, I had an older brother, I think like some people who have older siblings, your tastes are very much informed by their tastes. And so he was really interested in, in film and so was his friends. Um, and I remember he went uh, to Italy uh, for a year uh, abroad in, in college uh, and he was telling me about things that he was discovering, filmmakers like Fellini. Mm -hmm. um, so I tracked that down and that I think opened things up for me. Um, I think I also became interested in film in the mid 1990s when there was very much a kind of flourishing of independent cinema in the United States. Um, you know, filmmakers like Spike Lee, Jim Jarmusch, Richard Linklater, um, and that was really exciting to me. Um, and so, you know, when I went to college, I, I became very interested in studying uh, cinema, although I think I was, I gravitated more towards filmmaking, um, and that's actually what I, I studied, it, uh, focused more on in, in college, um, but then eventually I kind of switched gears into um, thinking more critically about film. So. You mentioned your brother's influence. He goes to Italy, uh, and then you mentioned your interest in uh, in, in uh, art, um, independent films in the U.S. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about your first book, uh, Runaway Hollywood: Internationalizing Postwar Production and Location Shooting. It seems to me that it's interesting, given those two things, to think about this book a little mm -hmm. bit. But the first thing is, 
the title, not the subtitle, the title, Runaway Hollywood. Right. Explain that. Yeah, so that really refers to the term runaway production. Um, and so this was a term um, that originated with Hollywood unions um, who were trying to identify a phenomenon, which is that in the late 1940s, uh, more Hollywood films were starting to be shot overseas, um, which caused a great deal of anxiety amongst Hollywood unions, which were already in a kind of precarious position, uh, facing a lot of changes in the industry. And so they were really concerned about the loss of employment opportunities. Um, so they came up with this term, which is really a kind of a pejorative term. Yeah, right. I mean, it, it kind of has, um, a charge of, um, you know, of, of sort of, uh, um, of weakness, of, of um, you know, uh, opportunities that were, were fleeing uh, Hollywood. So uh, they really anchored their campaigns against this phenomenon with that term runaway production. And so I wanted to foreground that. I do deal with the labor situation and how Hollywood unions reacted to that. Um, but I also go into what was the experience like for those filmmakers who did go overseas and what was the effect of that move on the films themselves. But for me, that sort of labor question was, was central and so I really wanted to foreground it um, by using that title, Runaway Hollywood. And, and your methodology is you're interested in aesthetics, you're interested in industry, and you're interested in labor, yes? Right. Yeah, so, um, you know, I, this, is a, this is a book of film history, um, but I was really interested in looking at how those different areas um, interacted. Um, so, you know, that really kind of spoke to the type of research I, I was gonna do. Um, so to do the industry uh, component, I was looking at uh, studio records, uh, primarily in Los Angeles. Um, you know, there's a political component which led me to go to the National Archives in uh, Maryland uh, to look at the State Department files to understand how embassies and consulates were tracking this phenomenon. Um, but, you know, the, yeah, ultimately I, I, I wanted to understand uh, what the effect of this move was on the films themselves. And, you know, at the end of the day, I, I'm kind of most interested in the movies themselves. Mm -hmm. And so, the thing that was most striking about it is that when you look at these movies, they're still Hollywood movies. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not making Italian neorealist movies, even if they're working in Italy, they're not making French New Wave films, even if they're working in France. But there is a slight change, which is that location, locations become uh, more emphasized in these movies, they become foregrounded, and so I wanted to hone in on, on that aspect of the films. So why did Hollywood want to do that? Why did they, why did they, why did directors, uh, producers start going to Europe to f make films? So I, I think we can look at two different reasons. The, the first one is financial. Um, so after World War II uh, in Europe, which was really the primary staging ground for these runaway productions, uh, you had a lot of fragile economies. And so these um, governments, European governments would freeze the foreign earnings of Hollywood studios in order to keep that money uh, locally and to force Hollywood to invest it locally. Hmm. Um, and I think the idea was that maybe Hollywood would invest in infrastructure, in French films, Italian films, British films, and to a certain extent it did that, but 
Hollywood, you know, thinking very kind of aggressively and, and um, how to kind of exploit this situation, s instead really invested that funds in their own films, but shot overseas. Um, so that was the first primary reason. Um, after that, there are additional financial incentives. Um, there were subsidies uh, in places like Great Britain that Hollywood companies could take advantage of. Um, There's also uh, personal tax incentives that stars and uh, directors could take advantage of by working overseas for a certain amount of time. It was a tax dodge. Mm. Um, so those are the financial um, reasons. But I think we can also look at uh, aesthetic reasons, uh, which was the authenticity of place. I mean, for decades, Hollywood had recreated foreign settings on backlots, on sound stages. But now Hollywood filmmakers were going to the real thing, so going to Paris, going to the jungle in Con the Congo. Um, so that became, I think, an important way to sell the movies. And you know, we also have to remember this was a period when there was a lot of competition from television. Um, and so this was another way to differentiate the product alongside other developments like uh, widescreen technology, uh, more films were being shot in color. So filmmakers could kind of pair the authenticity of location with these other new stylistic developments um, to sell movies. So I know that one of the things the book does is you, you, you sort of lay out parameters for films that will fit in your model. So you said these are Hollywood films. Right. So what are the characteristics that distinguish these particular films that are being shot? I mean, what's Hollywood about them and what's not Hollywood about them? Right, yeah, uh, it's a great question. And, and I think I, I try to take a lot of pains to, to, to justify uh, why I'm looking at these particular films. Um, so it's, it's a set of criteria. Um, firstly, it's, it ha they have to have some sort of financing from uh, a Hollywood studio, and some of that could come from foreign earnings, some of that could come from direct uh, financing. Um, so that, that's a big part of it. Um, also, certain positions on crews had to be represented by uh, Hollywood filmmakers. So um, if for the most part, they would be Hollywood directors, mm -hmm. um, sometimes a Hollywood producer, uh, certain production heads, like a director of uh, uh, photography or a production designer. But also a lot of this was dictated by the foreign union. So one thing I'm interested in is looking at how Hollywood uh, companies would conform to a lot of the foreign regulations, regu uh, regulations uh, of the international crews. Um, and often that was, that dictated that you could only use perhaps a director, a producer, maybe a cinematographer, the rest of the crew would have to be um, foreign. Um, and so, um, you know, I, I think it's it's those that that criteria that that led me to kind of define what, what it is. But I realize, you know, it's it's a messy time, mm -hmm. and, and I think that's what's really interesting. It's it's a really transitional time when um, there is more. Uh, mixing of financing, more uh, mixing of talent um, and crews. Um, so, you know, I think this is a way in to look at what was really a, just a massive inter internationalization of film in the post-war era. So, is it possible to sort of draw some generalizations about how this phenomenon that you look at transformed what Hollywood films were like? 
I, I think we could take a measured approach um, to thinking about that. Um, you know, I think one of the things I'm, I'm interested in is trying to chart measured change. Um, you know, these films again, weren't radically different from what was being made uh, in Hollywood, in studios, um, or even, you know, on locations in Southern California. Um, but I think we can see this kind of incremental change in terms of the locations, um, where there was a greater interest in authenticity and, and realism, but it was almost as if these filmmakers were kind of taking a studio-style approach to working on location. So again, they're not making neorealist movies or French New Wave movies. Um, so I think that's part of it. Um, but you know, you can also look at um, the stories, which were certainly more international. It was a lot of movies about uh, Americans abroad. Mm -hmm. um, you had a lot of movies dealing with the post-war situation, um, looking at um, you know all the uncertainties of post-war Europe. Um, so I think there was definitely a, a growing interest in making more international stories and also thinking about um, an international marketplace, mm -hmm. um, thinking about how to appeal to international audiences. And by this time, um, because of television and competition from Leisure Act time activities, audience numbers were going down in the United States. Um, so Hollywood studios had to increasingly rely on foreign audiences um, to make up that loss. Do you find that this phenomenon transformed European filmmaking? I would, I would give a kind of provisional yes. Um, I, I think that more work has to be done uh, with that, and, and my hope is that some of the, the work I've done on this book can lay the groundwork for, for other historians to, to look at this, and, and some, people, some people have. Um, but yes, I mean, I think in, in the European context, um, because a lot of the industries were, were devastated by uh, World War II, um, they were very interested in um, investment from Hollywood, in making sure that crews were being employed. Uh, Hollywood did invest in rebuilding a number of studios, kind of most famously uh, Chinachita, mm -hmm. uh, MGM put a lot of money into um, that infrastructure uh, so it could shoot Quo Vadis there. Um, so it did help the industry, um, but you know it, it was it also you know had some negative effects like increasing production costs mm -hmm. uh, in Europe, which made it harder for um, European uh, productions uh, to compete with with um, with some of those the, you know the cost of labor. Um, and you know, so there there was also a lot of kind of consternation from the European labor groups in terms of how to r deal with this influx of of, of Hollywood productions. Mm -hmm. Tell us a couple of these films, of sort of most famous runaway productions. Um, so I do one case study of of Roman Holiday, um, William Wyler's Roman Holiday. Um, with uh, Audrey Hepburn, um, and that's kind of one of the more famous of uh, the films uh, of, of this period. Uh, it's also, it's, 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 it's a wonderful movie um, with um, a great use of locations, and so one of the things I look at is how locations are specifically used in, mm -hmm. in this film, um, and how they're incorporated into the story, how uh, the kind of display, almost the spectacle of location is, is motivated in, in, in that film. 
Um, so I think that's a good example. Um, this book is also filled with terrible movies. <laughs> yes. I think that's that's one of the realities, <laughs> I think, of, of doing this kind of history. And, and But I think it's important to look at sort of bad movies or what we might call just n normal Hollywood films. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of uh, historical epics uh, like uh, Quo Vadis, uh, Ben-Hur. Ben-Hur is actually one of the, the better ones. Um, you have kind of adventure films like Mutiny on the Bounty, um, you know, which has some interesting location work, a very odd performance by Marlon Brando, um, but overall a, a three-hour slog. Um, <laughs> but, it, you know, for all these movies, the production histories are really interesting, um, and so that's really kind of what, what drew me to it. So you, you're, another area of your expertise is global Hollywood. Right. And that's not in the subtitle of the book. So what's the difference between, what is global Hollywood as you understand it? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, a kind of term that's um, used widely today in cinema and, and media studies um, to really think about the global dimensions of, of, of Hollywood. Um, I'm, I'm careful, you know, my subtitle is uh, internationalizing yeah. um, post-war production, not globalizing, um, you know, be, just because I, I think globalization, th that term is more of a, a, a modern usage. Mm -hmm. um, but you can certainly make a case that, you know, Hollywood and much of the world has been globalized for a long time. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think that uh, one way to, that I, one thing that I'm interested uh, in looking at is a kind of bottom-up approach mm -hmm. to thinking about global Hollywood. Um, when people discuss global Hollywood, it inevitably brings up sort of arguments about cultural imperialism. Mm -hmm. And I'm very interested in those arguments, but also kind of adding a nuance to what does globalization and cultural imperialism look like on the ground? And I think when you study um, things like labor, uh, when you look at the agency of specific filmmakers, you see it's a, a bit more complicated. Uh, that really, for the time I'm looking at, Hollywood had to uh, adapt to uh, a lot of the regulations and the circumstances of working uh, with international crews, but ultimately in order to attain their kind of aggressive financial goals. So it is very much a, a kind of model of cultural imperialism, but I think looking at it from the bottom up adds perhaps a slightly different picture, a bit more nuance. Mm. So I'm gonna switch some gears now. Yeah. So as I mentioned at the top of the interview, um, you were a recent recipient of an OHC teaching fellowship. So tell us about the class you developed using the fellowship. Um, so this is a class I've, I've long wanted to teach, um, and it was really focused on uh, style, Hollywood style. And so we looked at different stylistic elements like uh, lighting, technicolor, widescreen, um, and what I wanted students to think about is to study the evolution of style. You have to think about the interaction of industry, technological change, and creative choice. Um, so we looked at things like um, the use of Technicolor um, in uh, the original Star is Born from 1937, um, and the way that that movie uh, uses color, which also had to negotiate kind of pressure from the Technicolor Corporation 
collaboration, and there was actually um, a Technicolor representative, Natalie Kalmus, mm. uh, on set um, to shape the, the use of color. Um, so it's that kind of like interesting uh, intersection of industry, creative choice, and kind of corporate pressure um, that creates style. Um, so th that, that was kind of the questions that we, we were interested in. Um, but I also was interested in thinking about how to bring digital tools to the study of history. And so thanks to the um, funding from the Oregon Humanities Center, um, I was able um, to develop this uh, video essay component. Um, so I spent a summer um, learning how to use um, a software, Adobe Premiere, which is an editing program. Um, so I could teach students to uh, edit video essays. And so video essays are basically edited clips with voiceover. Um, and they would make uh, video essays about sort of the patterns of style in, in a film. Um, and you know, it, it was using a lot of just traditional skills that students develop in other classes, like how to formulate an argument, how to do research, um, but blending it with more of a, a kind of comp creative component. Um, and I think, um, you know, in the cinema studies department, we're really trying to figure out how to blend creative practice with critical thinking, and I think this was an opportunity uh, to explore that. And how did that component of the course go? Um, I, that was the most exciting uh, part, um, but uh, I, it was also challenging. I mean, I, I think it, it um, gave me a lot of respect for my colleagues who teach production courses <laughs> and how hard it is. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I know that a lot of our students are really interested in, in uh, creative work and production, um, but it's it's challenging, and you know, and I. I well, it's also interesting giving them very specific parameters and not to let them kind of run wild, but to, um, you know, have to kind of fit within a certain uh, framework, a certain time frame. You had to kind of address very specific issues, um, and uh, that's hard to do. Um, so, um, but, I, but I think there, there were some, some really excellent uh, video essays. Um, so I think there's, there's just so much potential with exploring that further. Mm -hmm. Yeah, fascinating, it's just a fascinating course. Um, what, what do you think the students learned? Um, I mean, so my hope is that they gained an appreciation for classic Hollywood, so it was mostly focused on classic Hollywood, and you know, that's what my research is, is really about. Um, and I think, you know, in this day and age, it's hard to f watch uh, classical Hollywood films, meaning hard to find them. Mm -hmm. um, if you look at Netflix, you know, there's only a few, there's maybe a dozen classic Hollywood movies. Um, so I think I, I sort of develop a, it's kind of consternation about, oh, what about the, f the future of, of, of film studies when no one has any understanding of, of classic Hollywood films or film history? Um, so I think that, that was one of my goals, and I think you know, they at least got a, a sense of different important filmmakers and, and important films, and ho hopefully they'll explore those further. Um, I think also it's important for me, for students to um, really be good analysts and watch films closely. Um, and so I think looking at style can be a good way into that. Um, and you know, I think that the, the films that we, we watch, I mean, S Star is Born it, it is great. It's not a masterpiece, but there are some other movies that we watched, um, like Double Indemnity or this great uh, Sam Fuller Western, 40 Guns, that I, I think are 
um, masterpieces and that they can give students who are interested in filmmaking a, a lot of ideas. Um, and I hope, you know, the, the students who enjoyed the video essay component, that that's something that they can take with them. Um, and that they also, uh, you know, learn some skills that they can incorporate into their academic work or uh, creative work. And I should say that, you know, a lot of them had taken editing uh, courses or had experience editing. So in, in some ways, you know, I was trying to catch up with, with some of them. And what, did, what are some of the kind of comments you got from them at the end of the course? Um, I, I think that, uh, you know, a lot of them were um, focused on the, the video essay component. I think kind of really excited about that and, and, and um, you know, wanting that to be more of an option in, in their other <laughs> courses. Um, so, you know, I, I think we've that's great and we want to respond to that excitement, but also kind of balance it with making sure um, that, you know, students can write good research papers and, and, and make arguments. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think um, that students were excited about um, looking at classic Hollywood films. So I think I got some good response on, on that. So what are, tell me one or two other classes that you teach. Um, I mean, so a lot of classes reflect kind of my interest in Hollywood, but I'm, I'm also interested in uh, contemporary cinema, uh, international cinema. I teach a, a class on contemporary international art cinema. Um, but one class that I, I probably taught the longest since I first came to um, University of Oregon is a class called Production Studies. And um, this is a course that looks at how um, production work doesn't just produce culture, but production work is a culture in itself. Um, so that uh, opens up our ability to think about issues of labor, um, the working conditions of uh, production. We look at a case study of this camera assistant, uh, Sir Jones, who was unfortunately killed on a set uh, through just uh, a terrible train accident and total negligence um, from some of the producers. Uh, we look at the issue of gender and why certain positions uh, have historically been gendered, things like casting directors and mm -hmm. script supervisors. Mm -hmm. Uh, we also, you know, more recently have had to reckon with the Me Too movement and Time's Up movement um, to look at a lot of the gender inequities and power imbalances that exist in the film and media industries. I tell students it's going to be a very depressing class, and it is, but the goal is really to identify the problems in the industry, think about solutions, and hopefully inspire students to go out there, work in the industry, and try to change it, make it a better culture. Hmm. Fascinating. So we've just got about a minute left. Last question. Um, tell us about your new uh, project, your new book project. So um, it's going to be a sequel to the current book. Um, it's tentatively titled uh, Cross Border Hollywood, and it's going to look at Hollywood productions that were shot in Mexico from the 40s through the 60s. This was something uh, that I was researching alongside um, the current book. Uh, Mexico was a very different situation uh, than Europe. Uh, Mexico had a very protectionist industry mm -hmm. that was very concerned about the influx of Hollywood productions. At the same time in Hollywood, there was probably the most vehement protest against Hollywood films going to Mexico. Mm. Um, so there's a political component. Again, it's gonna be another uh, study of production, uh, looking at um, how Hollywood has invested heavily in Mexico, especially during World War II. Mm. Um, and it's gonna be another look at style and how certain figures, um, uh, like cinematographer Gabriel Figueroa, 
uh, trained in Hollywood, went back to Mexico, became a leading cinematographer, worked on a number of uh, Hollywood productions, and kind of created this hybridized style that mixed uh, Hollywood conventions with a kind of Mexican pictorialism. I'm hoping that focusing on one country will be easier than many <laughs> countries. Um, also, you know, um, I'm Colombian American. I grew up speaking Spanish. I look forward to going to Mexico to do research. I think it'll be easier trying to do research in, in Spanish than you know a mix of kind of Romance languages in, in Europe. Uh, Daniel, thanks for taking the time to speak with us. It's been really interesting. Thanks so much. I've been speaking with Daniel Gomez Steinhardt, Assistant Professor of Cinema Studies at the University of Oregon. His first book, Runaway Hollywood, Internationalizing Postwar Production and Location Shooting, was published in 2019. As a 2018-19 Oregon Humanities Center teaching fellow, Steinhardt developed and taught the class Hollywood Film Style during the 2018 fall quarter. Thanks so much for watching. <laughs>